0: The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speaker. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice from your own physician. Hi, everyone. My name is Tobias Matei. I'm the deputy editor of the North American Spine Society Journal, and I have the pleasure of having with me here today Dr. William Schnapp. He's the first author of a study entitled Vertebral Nerve Ablation for the Treatment of Chronic Low Back Pain in a Community Practice Setting, a six-month follow-up. The study has recently published in in NASJ, and I have the pleasure of having Dr. Schnapp with me today. Thanks for your time.
1: Thank you. Good morning. Thank you for having me, and thank you for your interest.
0: So uh, would you like to perhaps introduce yourself, maybe a little bit of your practice, your training, and uh, the rationale for this study? Um, I understand that this is the first independent study uh, on the on the effects of base vertebral nerve ablation besides the trial, uh, the INTERCEPT trial, which validated this technique and was used for FDA approval, so uh, please.
1: Yes. Um- I, uh, my background is in neurology, and, uh, and then I did a, a fellowship in, in pain medicine at the University of Miami. Uh, I'm in private practice. I work with two orthopedic spine surgeons and a physiatrist, so it's four of us, four, four MDs in our practice, um, and the rationale for the treatment was um, that we really wanted to see if, if this worked in, in, our, in our hands, in our, in our real-world setting. Uh, this was quite an extraordinary claim uh, regarding, uh, the, the, the ability to, to, to treat pain at this level, um, treat end plate uh, pain in this way. And, and so when I found out about the, the original studies, the two level one studies, um, I really wanted to see if, th- if this would work for us. And so we, we really just wanted to keep track of our own patients, our own outcome, our own outcomes, and, and then, uh, ultimately make that information available so that others could see, you know, what, what what we found.
0: Perfect. Would you like to summarize some of the results of your study? Um, it was a very well-performed study, um, uh, even though with a low sample, but you used several um, standard uh, patient-reported outcome measures, pretty similar to what was used in the initial intercept trial. So that helps also with uh, a comparative analysis with their results, but please give our listeners uh, some idea of of what your findings were.
1: Sure, sure. so uh, this was uh, 16 patients that we followed. We we have to date uh, enrolled uh, 47 patients, so we're hoping to uh, publish a a larger uh, cohort uh, at a later date. Um, But what we found was uh, statistically significant improvements in both the ODI and visual analog scale at the time points one, three, and six months. Uh, they were above the minimal clinical important difference. Um, and um, at, uh, at six months, we saw about a 26 point improvement in the ODI, which we found quite, quite significant.
0: What is the, and I'm curious about the methodology because uh, there's one table that he reports um, at the levels which were performing. And, and I understand one of the inclusion criteria were modic changes, which makes sense in terms of the therapeutic mechanism that is expected for this type of procedure. Um, but there were a few cases that you did only one vertebra. And I suppose there are, those are those quite rare instances where you have uh, modic changes, for example, in the superior end plate, but not in the adjacent inferior end plate, but uh, can you clarify uh, what, what those patients, uh, what finding MRI findings those patients had?
1: Sure. So, uh, in the cases where we did one level, it was uh, typically where there had been a fusion and there was an instrumented level that we could not access, and so we were able to access the adjacent level. Um, and so t- typically where we would do one level, you're right, you would expect two levels uh, on the side of each each disc. However, uh, where there's a fusion, that might not be possible.
0: Oh, I understand. So let's go a little bit and d- discuss about the meaning of, of your results. Uh, I've been following the, the, the data on base vertebral nerve ablation. And, and for me, it makes sense in terms of the pathophysiology. Um, we've been focused on discogenic pain or pain emanating from the disc for the past few decades, and and none of the techniques that I remember seeing, for example, during my early trainings, like IDET or coblation. I don't know if you remember that. And what there was yes. a big push until I think 2005. That was I think it was the first double blind uh, trial, randomized trial that I've seen in spine surgery, because it's pretty hard to, to blind a surgeon for, for any type of intervention. But basically, they they turn off the, the, the radiofrequency ablation system at that trial, and they saw no difference between the coblation and the sham procedure uh, in six months. And I think since then, I've not heard of coblation or idet being performed and most insurance nowadays do not approve. So I like the idea and, and the concept of, of targeting the, the, the what we most people call vertebrogenic pain. But one concern that I have, and maybe you can give me uh, some insight into this, is that, for example, I found in your study, uh, for example, in six months that you had, uh, just focusing, focusing on ODI, you had an improvement of, 21.1% in your study, um, so so that that's above the M- M- MCID, which is I think 15 for for what you brought in the literature. But if you go to the initial intercept study that was used for FDA approval, uh, it showed that the placebo group had an improvement of 15.2% uh, 50.2 points in the ODI, while the treatment group had 20.5. So it means that both at one month, three months, and almost At six months, your improvement was very similar to what the placebo treatment had in the initial trial. And then at six months, it kind of jumped to closer what the the treatment was. So my problem when I see things like that is that if you had such a significant improvement in the ODI, in the placebo treatment, how easy is to differentiate a procedure that is truly effective from one that there's a significant placebo effect or uh, maybe we're not selecting the patients well and there is a het- uh, the heterogeneity of the sample explain those findings. But if you'd like to give me your comments on, on the possible placebo effect, which might be involved in your procedure and of, or in your study. And of course, it's not accounted because it's not uh, a randomized study.
1: Yes, absolutely. So this was not a controlled study. This was done uh, in a real world setting. And I think the placebo effect is always going to, be a factor. Um, there may be patients who might uh, give us a few points, let's say on the ODI, because they like us or because they uh, had a, had a good um, uh, had a good experience, for example. So, because this is not controlled, this in no way should be uh, compared. The results cannot be directly compared with the results of the randomized control trial, um, and. Uh, I would assume that there that there would be a placebo effect in in, in most most treatments done, um, uh, especially when we're talking about pain. Pain is very difficult to to measure, to quantify, and makes it exceedingly difficult to study. Um, so you're right. Um, I think what we wanted to see was, gosh, do patients get better? What if the results had been that uh, no patients got better, or patients got worse? Um with the very least wanted and hoped to see that um, the that, that patients got better, but your point is well taken.
0: Yeah, and I agree with that. For example, that study we mentioned about the IDAT, um, it was such a big blow on the technique because uh, not even the placebo study had any improvement at six months and, and neither had the, the IDAT. So I think the fact that you have some improvement suggests that suggests that there may be a real effect, but I think the great question when we're evaluating this type of procedures is, I mean, how invasive the procedure is. I mean, in this case, for example, you're you're going through the pedicle, you're not even uh, puncturing the disc space like a discography or an which we know leads to this degeneration. So, I mean, the deleterious effect of the procedure itself could be said that um, are not substantial, But I believe the great question when we analyze the the literature and evaluate the the MC values is how willing are we to be indicating a procedure that that may not be effective or what is the threshold taking account the low invasiveness of the procedure and the fact that this is a population of patients um, with refractory pain for whom there's not many alternatives. And, And I go back to the Intercept study I think they reported in terms of, I think they set a threshold for ODI of greater than 10. And then they found a a significant difference between the treatment and the placebo group. group. But 75.6% of the treatment group had an improvement of more than 10 points. But notably 55.3% of the placebo group had an improvement of more than 10 points. So that means that yes, there was a meaningful difference, but more than half of the placebo group had an improvement of greater than 10 of ODI. So that, that just tells me that, okay, 10, 10 points in the ODI is not something that even the insurance would be willing um, to pay or, or in terms of cost effectiveness, the threshold should be higher because you don't wanna have, I mean, it's too much for, for improvement for a placebo treatment. 55% improves uh, improvement on the placebo treatment is too much. We need to be more selective on that. Um, and I don't know what are your thoughts in terms of evaluating uh, I know that in your practice, as much as in mine, there are some patients that you have just exhausted most options. And, and in my case, I do uh, dorsal colon stimulation system uh, for this type of uh, patients that have failed conservative treatment and injections and facet ablations and um, all these interventional procedures. But usually the paradigm that most surgeons follow is that you try every all interventional pain procedures. And if you're still failed, then yes, you may be a candidate for a trial with a dorsal colon stimulation system. So, I mean, to be honest, I would be more than willing to accept a, a low level of confidence or or let's say a, 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 some degree of placebo effect in this procedure, taking account the challenging, which is treating this type of patients and the fact that you're almost at the end of the line in terms of of the of the resources, therapeutic resources you have. Um, but give me your thoughts in terms of the population you see. When what what is your thought process? When do you indicate this? Do you try all the facet ablations and all the other things first, or if you see a modic change, maybe this is the first choice um, for that population? Give me your paradigm.
1: Sure, and uh, and your points are all very well taken. I um I can tell you that this is not. Uh, so far in our practice been a first option uh, for patients. Um, it, it might've been a second option or it might've been a third option. Um, and we certainly encounter a lot of patients with uh, with, with very challenging um, ch- types of pain with difficult to identify uh, pain generators. What I can tell you is that we do a very thorough examination and we're really Um, selecting patients with symptoms of anterior column pain. In other words, these are patients with mechanical, non-radiating, axial lumbar pain. Um, And so the pain generators in that situation uh, are limited in numbers. So if they've tried a facet block, and many of them have, they've tried an RFA, they have not gotten improvement. That leaves only a couple other options for them before considering Other uh, major interventions, such as an open uh, uh, lumbar surgery, for example. Um, So, so yes, it's it's uh, it's a it's a procedure with a a very good safety profile. Um, It is um, more invasive than than a facet RFA, but far less invasive than many other kinds of lumbar interventions. Um, but, but I would say that in our practice, we, we first lead with a, a good history and, and physical examination, and they really need to have me- mechanical-type axial lumbar pain. These are older patients that, that we have treated. They're in their sixth, seventh, eighth decades. They might have pain in all three planes of motion. Um, however, we really try to find patients that have, in whole or in part, pain on forward flexion, where there's an indication that um, the anterior column is in play. And, and what are the criteria
0: that you use for that? I mean, one, of course, is modic changes. I mean, like you mentioned, the, the pain with, with flexion. Um, have you used the discography for this patients, or have you? I have not.
1: I, I, I have not. Um, I don't typically do discography for our patients, and for some of the reasons that, that you mentioned uh, earlier um and and then the question about what to do with that information is also not clear uh Correct. W- w- so it is my impression in
0: terms of discography i remember it was a quite widespread procedure maybe a decade ago and um uh, eugene Karaji, which was who was the previous editor of the tsj he was uh, probably the the greatest expert in terms of um, uh, uh, discogenic pain and and studying discography and, and I mean he published several studies demonstrating that the long term uh, effects of discography are not that benign and and we know that because in terms of experimental models for discogenic pain I mean we usually if you have a rat model and you want to induce this degeneration you you Puncture the disc with the needle. So, I mean, if you're doing discography and you're injecting contrast to the point that you're seeing the contrast disrupting significantly the annulus and to cause the pain, and you do that at two or three levels, some of which may not be causing pain. I mean, definitely it's not a benign procedure that you can tell that you're not affecting the natural history of disease. So I agree with you. I mean, in my practice, I've not used it. And honestly, I've not seen many pain managements using in in, in the past few years. So, uh, and and I'm just saying that because I I still think we lack a validated um, test for proper diagnosis of anterior column pain. And that would encompass both what we used to call discogenic pain, and more recently what people have called vertebrogenic pain, and to be honest, it's probably a combination of both. But it's definitely different from, for example, facet-mediated pain.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. Now, you know, I would love to have a series of different tests. For example, when we evaluate the sacroiliac joint, where we have four or five different tests where we can uh, evaluate that joint. It's it's difficult, really. You're limited to, okay, does the patient have pain on forward flexion or not? And, and, and that's that's not that's not a whole lot of information. For sure. In terms of
0: the levels, I've seen you a few patients you treat several levels. And looking at this technique, I mean, fine. At my clinic, I, I think that the ideal patient would be, for example, a 40- a or 50-year-old patient with a, a very pristine spine, but maybe Uh, uh, a degenerated disc a black disc what we used to say at l4 l5 for example with type one mode exchanges so that early stage that we know um, tends to be more painful Um, so that's probably the ideal patient so even if you're thinking about anterior column patient it's a single level you know the other levels are fine Um, but i'm just curious if you have any uh, limits in terms of the levels that you treat, or if you would consider this, for example, for a 78-year-old patients with advanced degenerative disc disease, maybe a Thurman uh, 4 at every single level from L1 to S1?
1: Uh, well, let me just say, I would absolutely agree with you. I, w- I would love to have more opportunities to treat patients in their 40s and 50s, mm-hmm. but unfortunately, the, pa- the, the procedure is not yet widely covered, um, and so for that reason, we have not had Uh, too many of those ideal patients. You're right, those are the ideal patients. They have a single-level disease. They have absolutely severe and refractory lumbar pain. They have the modic changes. Um, As far as the levels treated in the older patient population that we have been able to uh, give access to this procedure, uh, we have strictly used uh, the the modic changes uh, being present. um, I think it would be very interesting to study um, Perhaps uh, Furman, uh grading, and uh, doing this procedure prior to the development of modic changes, and perhaps using firming grading. Certainly, um, I don't think the pain starts just when the white starts to appear on the MRI on the MRI. I think that you know the the pain is very likely to precede the the, the those modic uh, findings. Um, but uh, right now the procedure is unlabeled for three, four, five, and S1. Uh, so we we, we have um, certainly initially uh, stayed with, uh, with the on-label. Um, however, uh, we have uh, gone into L1 and L2 as well, um, and that's been more recent.
0: Have you ever had a case, and I don't know if any terms of the FDA approval, I don't personally perform this procedure, but um, I know, for example, for facet ablation, for for uh, facet rhizotomies, sometimes you have renervation and you have to repeat the procedure. So my question is: Is the procedure even FDA approval for for a redo? Maybe after a few years, or have you had cases of recurrent pain that you have um, done a new ablation? Um, of we the we of have vertebrae? not.
1: We have not yet, and that's an excellent question. I don't think it's been sufficiently studied. What we can say is that uh, this nerve, the basal nerve, is, is, is thinly or non-myelinated, and because of that, the pain relief or the, the ablation may be more enduring than, uh, than the type of ablations that we do for the facet joints uh, where, the, where the nerve is, is myelinated.
0: Have you seen any anatomical studies or maybe radiographic studies, for instance, with MRIs that show the degree of ablation of the nerves or showing some sense how much the nerve is affected post-operatively because, I mean, I I understand this technique started with a very interesting concept of vertebrogenic pain. I mean, a very good understanding of the, 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 the innervation of this specific nerve in the vertebral body. But I mean, before even trying to correlate with, pain effects. I mean, is there any way to measure that this nerve is truly affected at least anatomically by the, the ablation itself, maybe by, by shrinking its size or as visualizing the MRI, have you seen anything like that or histological studies maybe later? Well,
1: I I've seen, I've seen studies in in measuring the, the size of the ablation on the MRI after this procedure. We've seen it in our own patients who have required an MRI for whatever reason after the procedure um, the procedure leaves a very distinct uh, appearance in the vertebral body, and um, we we even go so far as to warn patients about the about those findings because if the radiologist is not aware uh, of this procedure yet, uh, they may confuse it with a uh, neoplastic lesion or some other lesion. So um, so we we do definitively see. Uh, the areas that, that were ablated, this, the, the tissue is being heated to 85 degrees uh, centigrade for 15 minutes, so there's, there's very clearly um, uh, a, a mark left, a spherical mark left uh, that we can see on the MRI after the procedure.
0: So tell me about a little bit about those findings. I suppose maybe it's a high point intensity in the T1 and a hyperintensity that you choose, similar to the bone marrow edema that you see in in superior end plate fractures and osteoporotic patients. Is that the case?
1: Uh, yes, um, the lesions tend tend to be in the area where we ablate. Um, but what I can say, and, and what is interesting, is that sometimes they are a little off. They are a little bit left, a little bit right of what um, we. Uh, had lined up on, on fluoro, for example. Um, I don't know why that is, but but, but that's also been 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 demonstrated. Um, but yes, those those are the types of lesions that 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 we see and um, and they are very unusual in appearance. And so if a radiologist has not seen them, uh, there you can imagine there there's 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 quite a bit of confusion. We've gotten a lot of uh, interesting phone calls.
0: Um, how long does it usually take for those to, to subside? Um, have you seen, have you had any, I know this is very anecdotal, but it would be interesting to see your experience on that.
1: I, I really don't know. I really don't know how long they would be present, if they would be present forever. Um, uh, if I had to guess, I think that that tissue is going to remain abnormal. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh a radiographic follow-up for the species in terms of the the effects of the of the the base vertebral nerve ablation. Uh, tell me a little bit in terms of future research where do you think I mean I, I understand it, it is my impression that this is a promising technique that there has been uh, there have been a lot of groups um, in several countries involved and engage in 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 performing this technique, but uh, similar to several other interesting proposals we had in the past for treatment of back pain, most of which like IDET and loplasty and all those things have miserably failed. Where, what's next in terms of research for us to better understand the therapeutic value of this technique, or even in terms of clinical research. I mean, we have the randomized trial, we have a technique that had FDA approval, you provide the first independent studies showing, uh, reflecting your personal ex- institutional experience about the effectiveness of the technique, but uh, where can we go next in order to really validate those results and so that it can be incorporated uh, more widely in the clinical practice?
1: Well, I think it would be interesting to look at patients in terms of future research randomized to basal vertebral nerve ablation versus surgery, for example, versus fusion, where a fusion is felt necessary for for back pain and and the consideration of a a basal vertebral nerve ablation um, instead and see... What what happens with back pain in in, in, the, in the open surgery arm versus what happens with the back pain in the BVNA arm? I think it would also be interesting to look at adjacent level disease, adjacent segment disease in surgery, and perhaps before doing a revision or looking at a pseudoarthrosis from a revision standpoint, looking at a BVNA perhaps first. Um, and uh, as you mentioned, maybe uh, looking at premodic. Uh, doing some some pre-modic research to see uh, if patients who have back pain without having modic changes yet uh, would do well, perhaps using the permanent grade or or, or other uh, to determine um, if they would be a candidate and and see how those patients do.
0: And I think that's a very interesting proposal. The, The one caveat for that is that I think the vast majority of surgeons are, and rightly, are so uh, quite reluctant to perform any type of surgery for axial mechanical back pain and the literature kind of supports that position. Um, I know in the past people were much more, especially with a-lifts that you don't have the disruption of the paraspinal muscles. Um, but I, I can tell the vast majority of patients who my fuse, they either have, even if it's a grade, stable grade one, but they have neurological compression to the point that I'm doing my surgery for the radicular symptoms. And I'm fusing them because I'm removing a significant portion of the facet joint. And in that category that I see patients for whom the primary goal of the surgery is the treatment of back pain, it would be a very selected uh, cohort of patients. I remember in my fellowship, um, the some of the, the attendings, they were using bone scans. So uh, the technetium uh, 99 uh, bone scintigraphy for detection of end plate changes. And there was nothing much in the literature on that. And they were selecting... Patients based on that and modic changes and Furman for fusions and then indicating an leaf, which is a procedure without disruption of the parspinal muscles and without causing secondary back pain. And the outcome was very reasonable. So we even published an article with a, I call it lumbar fusion outcome score, but basically uh, it was a, a score from zero through to three. And you would, for a, a Furman, with advanced degenerative disc disease, I uh, would divide in, in, Furman, um, in all the, the, the Furman grades, and we would, uh, one so that would be one point for advanced degenerative disc disease, one point for modic changes, and one point for a positive bone scan. So those who had at least two or three points had a much better outcome for the A-leaf. So I remember at that time I was really convinced that it's not that there is no role for surgical intervention in that patient population, um, but definitely even in the patients for chronic refractory chronic axial back pain, it's still a very selected um, subgroup of patients. And that's those are the patients that probably even before considering something like that uh, might benefit from the basal vertebral nerve ablation. And, and that's one interesting study. I would be curious um, to see what are the, the results of this procedure when indicated not only based on modic changes, but based on uh, bone scan. Um, uptake in the end plates because i think yes. those are the patients that usually correlates with modic type 1 um, but if you have increased bone scan uptake at the end plates then i'm really convinced that that, that pain is vertebrogenic. yes yes I agree okay uh, any other message or anything else you would like to uh, leave uh, to our listeners Josh
1: uh, no i thank you so much and uh, we're really uh, at this point we have 47 patients enrolled uh, I just wanted to uh, to really thank you, and uh, and I think um, I think I echo the sentiments of of a lot of other physicians when we go through an exhibit hall or we're given information. Sometimes it's industry funded. Uh, we also like to have some other information perhaps from a colleague or from someone in the real world. Hey, listen, I'm doing this procedure; it's working well. And so um, take this information for what it is. It's real world, uh, but uh, definitely. Um, Uh, take it in the context of the two level one uh, uh, RCTs sham control very beautifully done but this is our real world contribution uh, to the existing literature
0: perfect and thank you thanks for our study thanks for considering NASJ as the journal for the publication and it has been a pleasure to have you in our podcast thank you so much